Romans chapter 8. So take your Bible and open it up. I'm going to be preaching uh, every week. Uh, I preach from the New American Standard Version. And uh, I got a new Bible. It's been interesting because it's kind of hard to navigate. I was talking with Jonathan just about that this morning. About uh, I like this new Bible. It's got big print, right? So I can read it a little bit better than usual. Uh, I'm getting older and I start to do this a lot, you know. And, uh, but it's difficult to uh, navigate, so I'm getting used to it. So if I go from verse to verse today in my Bible and it takes me a little longer than usual, just show me mercy, all right? But I do encourage you to, uh, to open up your Bible to Romans 8 if you, uh, if you have a print version, uh, open it up. If you have a digital version, click a button, whatever it is that you do with your phone or your iPad. In the last couple of years, uh, we've noticed uh, an increase, at least in, in, in my lifetime. I, I don't remember as many protests, open protests in the world as when I was younger. I noticed it a lot more over the last couple of years. Have you noticed that too? A lot of people are protesting uh, for whatever reason. And they protest. They might march on Washington. They might uh, protest in a school board meeting in their, in their local vicinity. That uh, People usually when they protest, they'll have these chants. Have you heard the chants that they have? Usually they're pretty general. And then they'll just plug in whatever word it is that they're arguing for, that they're fighting for. But usually you'll hear things like this. We want blank, whatever that is, and we want it now. Yeah. We want justice and we want it now. We want less taxes and we want it now. We want a raise and we want it now. Usually that term now comes after whatever demand it is that they're making. I love Romans 8 because we learn, we learn that our salvation if you believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that what he gives you happens now. It's not something you have to wait for. Now, we have to wait for heaven. We have to wait for the time when our bodies are glorified. We have to wait for the time uh, in the future where there's no more crying, there's no more tears, there's no more disappointment. We have to wait for the time when we actually get to see physically our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we get to do what Thomas did. And we get to see his, his nail-pierced hands and his pierced side, his nail-pierced feet. We'll get to see him and we'll get to worship him. There are many things that we have to wait for. We have to wait for um, the reasons why things happen in this life. We have a lot of questions. The Bible says that on that day we won't have any more questions. We'll have all the answers. There's an old hymn that says we will understand it better by and by. That means in that day. But there's something that we don't have to wait for this side of heaven. And that is being saved. Being saved from condemnation. Being freed from the power of sin and of death. Today we learn about the new now. Live in the now. You may have heard that expression used. 
To live in the now means to uh, not worry about tomorrow. It means to not stress about things you can't control, to live in the now. And yet, Scripture also says that we are to be wise about the future. We're to know the, the limits of our own understanding and the limits of our own power, knowing that God is sovereign and that He can and, and will do all that He desires to do. And so when we pray, we pray for His will to be done and for our will to line up under His. That's what we pray. What do we mean by the new now? Romans chapter 8, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. That's going to be the limits of our study this morning. 1 through 4, and then next week we'll pick back up in verse 5. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Father, would you give your word success in our hearts and our minds this morning? And Lord, change us in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we looked at the carnal man and the incarnate Christ. At the end of chapter 7, the Apostle Paul comes to this realization that every human being must come to before they see their need for a Savior, before they cry out for a Savior. Paul's going to say again in Romans chapter 10, he's going to say, Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We have that promise. Whosoever calls upon the Lord, the name of the Lord shall be saved. But when we, what we learn in chapter 7 is that Paul comes to this realization that he is a sinner and that he needs a Savior. That he needs Christ. He doesn't just need a religion. He doesn't need a religion to try to live better. He doesn't need a God to believe in or anything like that. He comes to the realization whenever he looks at God's law and he says, God is telling me in his law that this is what righteousness looks like. And as I read the law and as I try to live by it, this is one thing that I realize. Sin dwells in me. The one who wishes to do good. He says, the best thing I can be in and of myself is a wisher. I can wish all I want to, but he says the, the truth is sin dwells within me. And there's nothing that my flesh can do about that problem. And so he says at the end of chapter 7, he cries out. He says, wretched man that I am, who will save me, who will deliver me from this body of sin. Then he concludes that by saying, thanks be to God. In verse 25 of chapter 7, thanks be to God. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then on one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. This is why in chapter 8 verse 1, the very first word, if you look in your Bible there, is the word therefore. Because everything that he's about to say in chapter 8 hinges upon chapter 7. Especially what he says in verse 25. Do you see that? He says, therefore... Therefore, because what God has done in real time. 
Now, before we get there, let's just look at a little bit of the background, not just of chapter 7, but kind of where we've been in Romans. We've determined, we've determined that mankind has a condemnation that is fair. It's just. That means that not a single human being can raise their fist to God and say, God, what you consider about me, the fact that you see me as a sinner is not fair. It's unjust. The Bible says there's not a single one of us that can do that. Even the best of us need a Savior because even the best of us has a sin problem. And so our condemnation is just. Psalm 51 verse 5 says, Surely I have been a sinner from birth. This is David. A man who the Bible says is a man who is after God's own what? Heart. He was described as a man after God's own heart. He loves the things that God loves. He hates the things that God hates. You can read through the Psalms and you can see how much David loved God. Listen to what he says though about himself and about humanity. He says, Surely I have been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We learn about the all-encompassing nature of sin. In Ephesians 2 verse 3. The Bible says, we were all, we all were among them as children of wrath. Paul says, we were among the sinners. We were, by nature, we were children of wrath. We didn't learn this. It's inside of us. These aren't sinful behaviors just that we learn. Of course, we perfect it though, don't we? Man, we come up with all kinds of new ways to sin every day. New ways to hide our sin from God. With the rise of technology comes the rise of ingenuity. Not just for good things. Though we've done many good things. With the use of technology, we've also done many sinful things. Because we're by nature children of wrath. That doesn't just mean that by nature, we have issues or that we have problems. Sometimes we like to kind of slough off our sinfulness by redefining it, don't we? We'll say things like, well, nobody's perfect. That feels a lot better, right? To say, well, I'm not perfect, but neither are you. To measure ourselves with one another than to measure ourselves by the righteous law of God. But He is the standard. Romans 3.23 says, For all have, what? Sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Whenever I read that verse, I, I always think of those days in high school when I was a baseball player and I played first base. And it always frustrated me when I would get a throw from the shortstop or the third baseman or second base. It was usually second base, which is really ironic because he's only like 15 yards from you. Right? The third baseman always gives you a really good throw, but then for some reason second baseman just can't handle it. It's crazy. Sorry, that's a little personal, little personal note there. But as a first baseman, my job was to make sure that I got to the ball before the runner got to the base. And sometimes I had to dig a, a short hop throw, you know, in the dirt. The worst ones were not the ones that were short or the ones that were off a little bit. The worst ones were the ones that were short and off. The player didn't have the aim and he didn't have the arm. Those are the most frustrating. That's what Romans 3.23 is saying. And I say that all the time. 
God is saying in His Word that we neither have the moral compass, that is, we don't have the aim to hit the mark of righteousness, even if we, even if we were better than all of our peers, and we don't have the moral strength, we don't have the arm, we don't have what it takes to meet the requirement of His holy law. All have sinned. Who have sinned? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I want to read Psalm 14. You turn in your Bibles over to Psalm 14. Hold your place in Romans and turn over to the Old Testament. Again, the words of the psalmist. Psalm 14. Verse 1, starting in verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there were any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. There's very little room for ambiguity there. It's all of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So our condemnation, the Bible says, is just. Galatians 3.10 says, For as many are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the Lord of the law to perform them. Paul's very clear there. And again, a couple pages over from Romans 8, you remember maybe a couple of uh, months ago, Romans 5, when we were there, starting in verse 12 through 21. Listen to how the Bible describes our sin. Starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, who's he talking about there? Adam, the very first man. The, the man through whom sin entered into the world. So he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind because all sinned. Do you see it there? For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, look at verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. You get that? So he says, through Adam, through one man, sin entered into the world. And then he goes to compare it to, in the same way, through Jesus, through one righteous man, salvation comes to all who believe. He says, but the free gift, this is in verse 15, the free gift is not like the transgression. They're different. The sin of Adam, the one transgression of Adam, is different from the act of righteousness of Jesus on the cross, His death, burial, and resurrection that gives us freedom and new life and no condemnation, as he's going to say in Romans 8. The free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. What is he saying there? He's saying this. It seems obvious that if, if sin enters into the world through one man, Adam, it's going to get 
exponentially worse, right? Because now you have a multiplicity of people who are committing sin. He says, but the adverse is true about Jesus Christ. Because of the, because of the greatness of the act... God coming in the form of flesh, taking on the form of mankind and sending His only Son to die on the cross. The, the work that He completed on the cross abounds over all of our sin. The gift, He says in verse 16, is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. There's that word again, condemnation, that we see twice in our text this morning in Romans 8. Resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Paul is saying, if God is going to do something to save us while we were at our lowest, while we were sinners, how much more will we be justified and sanctified through the finished work of Christ who has arisen from the grave and who is alive today. Amen? He flips this thing on its head to encourage us. To make us focus our attention upon Jesus. And not on our own flesh. One man's obedience. One man's obedience. Not your obedience to the law. Not you're measuring yourself among other people as to God's law, but it's the work of one man, Jesus Christ. And so now we come to Romans chapter 8, and Paul says, There is therefore now, when? Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The first thing that we notice in this passage is a new reality. Write that down. A new reality. We know that it's a reality because he uses the word now. Do you see it? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's not pointing to something that we look forward to and that we hope for, though we are hoping for many things in the future. He's saying, this is your new reality. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you've surrendered your life to Him, and you're in Christ, you have a new reality that has teeth in it today. It's not just something that you have to think about, that you, that you have to hope for in the future. It's a new reality today. He says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now, this is a bit of a double-edged sword. Though sometimes we, we like to think only in positive ways about what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. It's just the world that we live in. A couple of weeks ago, I, I read a very long uh, article about Disney movies. Some of you were like, oh my gosh, how long is he going to read this? Right? But, but it pointed out something very real about the time that we live in. We are positivists. We focus on the positive all the time. And we don't recognize, we don't recognize that there are negative things as well in our world. We try to ignore them. We try to speak over them or against them. The gospel, listen, the gospel is good news. It is. 
But Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, His vicarious atonement on the cross, doesn't just mean that there's no condemnation for all who are in Christ now. It means that there is condemnation for those outside of Christ now. So if you don't know Christ, you stand condemned today before God. As a matter of fact, Paul even uses this language when he, when he writes uh, to the church in Galatia, to the churches in Galatia. He says, in Galatians at the very beginning of the book, he says, when I went to, uh, to visit the church, I saw Peter there and I opposed him to his face. Do you know why he says? Because he stood condemned. He says, by all appearances, it looks as though through Peter's behavior, he is not trusting in the finished work of Christ, but he's reverted to trying to live by the law. And I can't allow a brother to do that. I have to confront him and show him that all of our hope is in Jesus Christ. Not just some of it. He says, Peter stood condemned, so I opposed him. I confronted him. I confronted some of the other brothers and sisters who were being led astray by his hypocrisy. So though we look at this verse, and verse 1 can be very encouraging, it, can all, it has another side of truth to it. Yes, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ now. But now, there are people on the precipice of eternal separation with God because they are not in Christ. Your friends, your family, your neighbors, maybe even some of you. If you are not in Christ, you are separated from God. He makes all the difference. He's not a footnote in our religion. He's everything to us. Everything to us. Amen? If we look at Galatians 2.20, I want you to notice the, the tenses that are used. Because in verse 1 of chapter 8 of Romans, therefore, look, listen to these tenses. There is now, that's the present reality, no condemnation for those who are in Christ not there's no condemnation now for those who will be someday will have this last chance at the throne of God. We see Him face to face and go, okay, now, now that I've seen Him, now I believe. The Bible says that's not going to be the case. When Thomas asked to see, he says, I won't believe unless I see His hands and see His side. Jesus says, you believe because you've seen me, but blessed are those who believe who have not seen. When we get to Galatians 2.20, I want you to see the, the tenses here because Paul says, I have, that is in the past tense, I have been crucified with Christ. And so he is... He's saying, Jesus, when He died, He died for me. I was at the cross with Him. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, that is the present, right now. No longer I who live, but Christ lives, that's in the present tense, in me. And the life which I win, now live, do you see it? In the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, past tense, and gave, past tense, himself up for me. Paul is saying, I'm crucified with Christ. The life I now live, it's significant because I'm living in that truth. It is a new 
reality. A new reality. Romans 8.1 is a, st- a verse that deals with our justification. Being justified. We've been justified by Christ. The second thing we notice in this passage, write this down, is we notice the new relationship to the law. As a Christian, you have a new relationship to the law. You shouldn't be looking at the law the same way that you used to. You should be looking at it in a new way. Notice what he says here in verse 2. Look there in your Bibles. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Do you see that? He describes two different laws. The first one, he calls the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The second one is the law of sin and death. See, something has to change. Something about our flesh has to change. That's what Paul was saying in Romans 7. He was saying, when I think about who I am, I, yeah, there are things that I agree with God's Word. In my spirit, I agree, but I'm, I'm in the flesh. I'm a human being. And there's a seed of sin deep within me. And it keeps producing bad things. Every time I'm exposed to the law of God, to God's law that says, thou shalt not covet. He's like, you would think that would make me covet less. I, at least I know the right thing to do, right? He says, no. That's actually not what happens. In the last couple of weeks, we've compared it to a, a seed in your yard that lays dormant for a long time. And it might think, listening to all of its other friends in the yard, you are a beautiful rose. Just wait. Someday, it's within you. You're beautiful. You're a flower. You're going to adorn this yard. And then the rain comes, germinates the seed, and the seed discovers something it never thought about itself. It's not a rose. It's a weed. It's the worst type of weed. The type of weed that the, the homeowner, the gardener, does not want in his yard. That's what the law does, Paul says. The law exposes. It does not conceal. It does not hide our sin. It exposes it. And because it exposes it, it should cause us to cry out for God to give us a Savior. Where is our hope? It must be in some other flesh. See, because God does not just ignore our sin problem. He doesn't just overlook it. He has to satisfy it. He has to change it. The only way to do that is through flesh. And so what does He do? John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Apart from Him, nothing that is coming to being has come into being. And He says later on, and the Word became what? Flesh. The Word, the Logos, the wisdom of God took on flesh so that God could take away the stain of sin through the flesh of His Son, Jesus Christ. So that we would not be condemned. Now Jesus says Himself in Matthew 5.17, He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to establish it, to fulfill it. So Jesus going to the cross and dying for your sin was not God's way of cheating the system. God is true. He is perfect. He's not going to say something and then say, well, forget about that. We're going to take a mulligan. He satisfies the requirement. 
So He comes. He puts on flesh Himself. He dies. He sends His Son Jesus to die in our place. He fulfills the requirement of the law. He's not just ignoring our sin and giving us a clean slate. He's not forgiving our sin and forgetting our sin. He's forgiving our sin because He's satisfied. He's satisfied the requirement of our sin being paid. We refer to this as penal, that is the penalty. Our penalty that we deserve has been paid by Jesus Christ. Penal, substitutionary, that is Jesus died in our place. He took our death upon himself, the one that we deserve on the cross. Penal, it's substitutionary, it's vicarious. That means that all the righteousness that God requires in the flesh is met in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it's a penal, substitutionary, vicarious atonement made in the flesh. And so he says here in verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free. That means if Jesus didn't go to the cross as a perfect, pure Lamb of God sacrifice, we would still be under the law. But you're not. Not if you're in Christ. You are free from the law. Because all of the demands of God's law have been met in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, the Bible says if you're in Christ, you are free. You are free. You are free from the law. But it's only in Christ that you're free. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, we were just there a while ago. I want to encourage you to turn there again. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes this. The group of Christians who have their roots in Judaism. He says to them, very confrontationally, in verse 3, verse 1, the 3, he says, You foolish Galatians. And he's talking to Christians. Who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh? I meet many Christians who talk about trying to, trying to live in such a way as to satisfy the requirements of God's law so that they might gain favor with God somehow. And I want to ask the same question that the Apostle Paul does here of his Galatian brothers and sisters in verse 1 through 3. He's like, did you not forget? I mean, did you, did you not remember? Now he's talking to people who were there actually physically. They saw Jesus crucified. They, some of them saw Him resurrected. They, they talked with Him. They saw Him on the beach with His disciples. 500 plus witnesses after His resurrection. And Paul is saying, wait a minute. You've actually seen Him. You saw Him crucified. Now none of us have here, have we? None of us were there to see it. And many people say, I'll believe in Jesus. I'll believe in the gospel if God can just show me some physical evidence. If I could see Jesus face to face... I could maybe go back in time and see, did he really do what the Bible says that he did? I will believe. Paul is talking to people who saw it firsthand and they still struggled with this idea of needing to fulfill the law of God in their own flesh. And he says, 
Don't be perfected by the flesh when you've begun, begun by the Spirit. Continue to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verses 21 through 31 of Galatians, he asked them this question, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? He's like, do you know what it says? He says, for it, was, for it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now he goes back to the story of Abraham. The promise of the heir, Isaac. Even though Abraham and Sarah were very old in age. He said, it is written that Abraham had two sons. One by the bondwoman, that is Hagar. And one by the free woman. Now he's going to compare Isaac and Ishmael to the two covenants. He's going to talk about the Old Testament law and the New Testament covenant of grace through Christ the gospel of Jesus Christ he said the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh what does he mean there he says that Abraham and his wife Sarah decided in their own power they were going to provide their own heir because they were like there's no way God can do this I mean we're in our we're in our 70s you haven't been able to have kids your entire life Sarah maybe we can help God out and they looked to their own flesh to be able to, to make it happen. He says, The son by the bondwoman, this is in verse 23, was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. He says, but the Jerusalem above is free. He goes on. He says in verse 28, You brethren like Isaac are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. He's saying that literally and he's saying for every Christian who wants to be perfected by the flesh in keeping the law, it will be a life of constant persecution. Saying that you're free, but you're living as a slave. Because you don't put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. But you're trying to do it all on your own. Finally, he says, But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. This was happening in real time in the Old Testament with Abraham. God told Abraham, That is not the child I promised you. You must cast them out. I'm going to do something that, that no one would believe. I'm going to do a miracle in your life. And there's going to be no doubt as to who did this. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ, folks. The miracle that God does in the life of every single believer. It is hard to believe, isn't it? It is hard to trust. But folks, the Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. He has fulfilled in his broken and spilled out body on the cross, he has fulfilled the law for you in your place. And now you can be free from the grip of the law and sin. Thirdly, we have a new reason for living. We're going to get into this more in the coming weeks. But he just touches on it here in verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. 
sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Does that word condemn again? We see it twice in this passage, don't we? In verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that there's no condemnation at all. It doesn't mean that condemnation itself is cast out of the picture. No. Condemnation still exists, but he says in verse 4, the requirement of the law, or verse 3, God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Paul is saying God is still operating by His rules. But he does it in himself. He takes our sin upon himself. He satisfies the requirement of the law in his own son. What the law could not do, we go back to that illustration. The rain that falls upon the seed of the weed cannot make that seed produce something else. In the same way, the law of God, when you apply it to your life, cannot produce in your heart works of righteousness that please God. Yeah, you'll get it right sometime. Yeah, maybe even nine out of ten times. Like, hey, end of the day, you look at the time and you look at your journal and you say, I did pretty good today. You know, X off, check off some boxes. In the day, you're still a sinner. I'm still a sinner. The law of God cannot produce in us righteousness. It's weak to do that. It's strong in other areas and it's pure and it's good. But it's weak when it comes to producing in us righteousness. It cannot do that. Our righteousness has to come from outside of ourselves. And so what does God do? God doesn't lie to us and say, hey, just keep going. Try a little harder. He doesn't dangle that carrot in front of us. You're almost there. You're almost there. And lie to us, does He? No. He comes down. He gets in our mess. He walks with us. In the person of Jesus Christ, when you open up the Gospels and you read who Jesus is and what He does, He's not standing aloof from society. He's rubbing elbows with the prostitutes and with the beggars and with the tax collectors and the the worst of humanity. Why? To show us that that's what God is doing when He saves us. He doesn't take the, the, the upper crust. He doesn't take our best off the top. He gets down to the very bottom of our problem in our heart and He saves us. We have a new reason for living and rejoicing. And that new reason for living is Jesus Himself. Sometimes we refer to this as a Christocentric way of living. Where Jesus is at the center of your entire life. Your relationships with everybody in your family, with your spouse, with your children, with your family, with your neighbors, with your co-workers. And every day that we get up, it's all about Jesus. He's not a side note. He is everything to us. He is our new reason for living. And then finally and lastly... We have a new way of living. We have a new way to live. He says in verse 4, So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
a new way of walking. Walking according to the Spirit. Now we see seeds of this in Paul's thinking in chapter 7, don't we? Paul's like, you know, I'm reading the law and I'm trying to live by it, but I'm coming to these realizations. You know how people come to those realizations? When the Holy Spirit's speaking to them. That's how people come to the realization that Paul does. And he says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do the good. See, we can't make that statement. We can't come to that conclusion in our flesh. God is already speaking to Paul as he looks back on his conversion. He's relaying, this is what happened in me. I came to the conclusion that I need God's help. I need God's deliverance. And that grows. And that's called, not justification, but that's called, as we're going to get into the next part of chapter 8 next week, is called sanctification. We're being made into the image of Jesus as we grow in our faith and in our walk with Him. We're being sanctified. It's a long process. Ups and downs. Hills and valleys. Setbacks. Times of rejoicing. Sometimes of depression and sadness. But before we close in prayer in just a moment, I I want you to see something in chapter 4. It's very important. He says, So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh. He does not say, Because we do not walk according to the flesh. That's very important. Because if it were because we do not walk according to the flesh, now... Now, Paul would be saying, yeah, I don't fulfill all these requirements of the law, but I'm a very spiritual person, and because I walk in a spiritual way, now God is reckoning me as righteous. The law is being required in us because we're spiritual people. That's not what Paul says. He's saying, the law is being fulfilled in us through Christ, by Christ, through us. Who who are we? He says, we are the type of people. We are the people, as we're being sanctified, who no longer walk according to the flesh. We walk according to the Spirit. We listen to the Holy Spirit. We follow the Holy Spirit. When we come face to face with God's law, when we come face to face with God as He's holy, we bow before Him. We're not rebels anymore in His presence. We're humble. We're submissive. We're not only submissive to Him, we're submissive to one another as fellow believers in Christ. We belong to one another. It's a new way of living. Live in the new now. Live in Christ now. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want to read this old hymn. The words were composed by Charles Wesley, a great Methodist evangelist and writer. He says, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou my God 
should die for me. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free. Oh, praise my God, it reaches me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Are you in Christ today? Do you know Him? If you don't, He invites you to know Him. He calls you to know Him. The first step is to confess to God, God, I don't measure up. I, I'm, I'm, I realize today that there's no way I ever will. I'm done being religious. I'm through trying to perform my own. I can see the end of myself. And God, I need you. I believe in your son, Jesus. I call upon the name of Christ Jesus to save me today. That has to be between you and the Lord. I can't pray that prayer for you. You have to go before Him this morning if you don't know Him. And ask Him to save you. He will. He will and He can. And He does. But only through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's all about Christ. Are you in Him? If you're a believer today and you are in Him... Maybe you just need to be encouraged by today's word and challenged to not forsake your first love. To not try to be perfected by the flesh when you began by the Spirit. You just need to be encouraged to continue on in Christ. I hope that you're encouraged by God's word today. Let's go before Him in prayer. I'm going to pray for you and then Mike is going to uh, actually, I am going to read a passage of Scripture as our benediction in just a moment from Proverbs 3, 5-6. through 6. So would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Father, we come to you thankful for your Son, Jesus. No condemnation, now we dread. That word now is so significant to remind us, to assure us of what we have in Christ right now through faith. That even though sanctification is a process of us becoming more like our Savior Jesus, if, if something were to happen to us today, if we were to be called home today, we would be ushered into your presence because of your Son Jesus. It's all about him. Thank you, God, for the salvation that we can have right now. I pray that if there's a person here, Lord, 
who doesn't know you, who doesn't know your son Jesus, who doesn't have a personal relationship with him. God, I pray that today would be the day when they confess their sin to you, when they stop pretending. When they stop stop just beating around the bush and, and finally come before you and say, I am finished. I don't have what it takes. I must be saved by someone else. I don't have it within my flesh. It must be through Jesus Christ. I I pray God today that they would cast themselves at your feet and claim Christ as their own. Father, that each soul here today would be encouraged through your word. That the only hope that we have is in Jesus. But that hope is steadfast and sure and it's not fickle. It doesn't fade away. It doesn't change. It doesn't wane in any way. But that your son rules and reigns at your right hand today. And someday all of his enemies will be put underneath his feet. Until that day, Father, let us trust your son Jesus. Obey his voice and follow him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to encourage you to stand with me as we prepare to uh, dismiss. Hopefully, you received a connection card when you walked in. I want to encourage you to take that out if you have not already made use of that. Take that out and write down. There's a place on there where you can tell us how to pray for you. encourage you to do that. And then also, if there's some decision that you want to make public or you just want to... uh, Let us know who you are. You'd like for us to reach out to you. Please fill that out. Place it in the box in the back. There's a table there in the back as you came in. There's a little box there. You can also, if you're here this morning and you want to give, you can use that box to do that as well. But make sure you put a connection card in there and let us know how to pray for you. We're going to close in reading Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. 